0: Hey, folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Brian Shoemaker, owner of Susquehanna River Guides. We talk about growing up in Pennsylvania, how he got into the guide game, and take a deep dive into all things smallmouth. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we move on to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, it would be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice and tell a friend. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's brought to you by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. To see for yourself, visit www.nor-vice.com. Now, on to our interview. Well, Brian, welcome to the Articulate Fly.
1: Well, thank you, Marvin. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our time together this evening. And we have a tradition on the articulate fly. Um, we always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: My earliest fishing memory, well, I'm probably going to say I was somewhere around five or six years old. Uh, my dad's the one that got us started. Um, I had a, well, um, my sister who who we lost about eight years ago. So it was my sister and I and my dad would take us over to a section of the Yellow Breaches Creek, which was kind of neat. It had like a little dam, but in the middle it was broken. So he would take us over there fishing and we would fish, but we he'd also take life jackets with us. We put the life jackets on and my sister and I go up above that little dam and we would ride down through that chute and we would swim and fish. So that's, that's pretty much uh how we got started fishing. Was was doing that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, very neat and how did you get pulled to the dark side of fly fishing?
1: Well, again, it was my dad. Um my dad still is uh a very avid fisherman and a fly fisherman and both he fishes some uh conventional tackle too every once in a while. But uh he's the one that got me started fly fishing. And unfortunately, it was uh, on, a, on a trout stream um, in northern Dolphin County here that uh, wasn't very forgiving because it's surrounded on both sides of the stream by a lot of hemlocks. So that's where he took me to start fly fishing. And, of course, I'm getting hung up in the hemlock trees about every other cast and so forth and so on and i i got frustrated so i basically put down the fly rod for about i don't know i think he started me fly fishing i might have been 12 or so and then i put it down for a couple years and i didn't pick it back up to my late teens and then after that i haven't really looked back
0: really need. And in addition to your dad, who are some of the folks that have mentored mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what do they teach you?
1: Well, um, one of my, one of the biggest mentors, uh, a very good friend of mine's Bob Clauser, and Bob lived down in Middletown, which was about uh, a half hour south of me. And I got to know Bob through, through a fishing club and Basically, uh, you know, he befriended me and he helped me a lot and and still does to this day um, with uh, all aspects of fly fishing. So uh, I've been very fortunate through my career, Marvin. Um, Not only am I very good friends with with Bob Clouser, I was also uh, very good friends with Lefty Cray. Lefty helped me in a lot of different ways. So I've got to know a lot of, um, really good fly fishermen and, and some of the guys here in the Cumberland Valley, um, a gentleman by the name of Ed Shank, who just passed away. I was friends with him, was able to do some trout fishing with him. So, you know, through my, my whole fishing career, I've been very fortunate with, with the help that I've had.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty amazing list of folks and, you know, how did you become obsessed with smallmouth?
1: Well, where I grew up uh, in, in a little town of New Cumberland, which was, is right on the Susquehanna River, and I grew up two blocks away from the Susquehanna. And also, it was very close to uh, where the Yellow Breaches Creek dumps into the Susquehanna. So we did have a little bit of trout fishing uh, in the park where the creek runs through, But it had a a dam. So once you got below the dam, it became all warm water because a lot of the uh, species from the Susquehanna would come up the creek. And once they hit the dam, that's as far as they could go. So they stocked trout above the dam, and below the dam was warm water. So basically, I grew up on the Susquehanna River, and that was pretty much my playground. So when I was growing up and when Mom and Dad figured I was old enough that I could go explore on my own. I mean, a lot of times in the summer, you'd find us down on the river and we'd be running the riverbanks. We'd be wading out there in the river. And so pretty much I, I was a warm water species guy.
0: Got it. And, uh, what made you want to become a fishing guide?
1: Well, because I like to help people. And that that's one of the, I think, the greatest things uh, that I can do as a guide is to try to help people, whether it be casting, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, having guys come from a trout background, want to catch a smallmouth bass, you know, show them those techniques and, and how to build upon that and, and just help people out. That's what i I enjoy the most and and that's how i that's one of the reasons I got into guiding.
0: that's interesting and you know so in your part of Pennsylvania, are there a lot of guides? Was it hard to break into the guide game, or how did you do that?
1: um again, it goes back back to to Bob Bob is the one that that really um uh, helped my guiding career because it was him and his son Bobby Jr. Bob had to fly shop in Middletown and him and Bobby guided on river and then through Bob you know I was able to help uh run a couple trips with them like when they needed three boats Bob would call me and I go down and run with him and Bobby so and then it just built upon that and then uh at the time this is back I started guiding in I'm thinking ninety three, ninety four, somewhere in there. Um back then for fly fishing for smallmouth bass on the Susquehanna, there was only like four or five of us. And that was it. There wasn't wasn't a whole lot of us doing it. So it was Bob and Bobby, myself, um, there was another fella up on the West Branch and one up on the North Branch. And at that that time through the 90s and early 2000s, that was pretty much it for fly fishing. Now, we had a lot of conventional tackle guides, but uh, as far as the fly fishing goes, there was only about five of us doing it.
0: Wow. And what's it like today? I'm sure there are a lot more folks out there, right?
1: There is. Yes, there is. There's there's a lot more fly guides. Um, you still got about the same same amount of of conventional tackle guides but yeah there's there's been more fly guides come out of the woodwork so yeah it's it's not as crowded as the trout guiding is but yeah it's it's more crowded than what it used to be that's for sure
0: yeah and how does the state of pennsylvania regulate guiding is it like montana and wyoming or is it not that restricted
1: It's not that restricted. The only thing that that Pennsylvania, I mean, Pennsylvania has a guide's guides license. And there's just a few stipulations, like you have to have proof of liability insurance, uh, first aid, CPR. Uh, You have to have either a captain's license or a um, boating safety certificate. To get your guide's license, and of course, there's a fee involved with that as well. Um, And that's pretty much, that's all required to be a guide in Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, that's kind of, seems to me like that falls a little bit in the middle, because I know like in North Carolina, you have to have a license, but there's really not a lot of requirements other than having the money. Um, and it's obviously that's not, it's not quite as strict as, you know, what Montana does in terms of outfitters and guides that work for them. But, um, yeah, it's good to know. It sounds like, you know, it's nice to know that, uh, when you book a guide in Pennsylvania that, you know, you're, you're going to be safe and you're going to be well insured, um, for sure. Right. Absolutely. And so you, you've been guiding for a while and, you know, you've seen people come and go. You got to spend time with Bob and and Bob Jr. Um, what do you think it takes to be a good fishing guide?
1: Um, it, it, number one, I think it takes patience. It really, really does. Um, but you have to have, you have to be a people person. I was told uh, early on in my career, basically as guides, we are entertainers. Because you're going to get folks that come with you for the day, okay, whether you're going to wait them or you're going to be in a boat, but you're going to spend at least eight, 10 hours with those folks for the day. So you've got to be a teacher, a coach. If fishing's going slow, you've got to tell them stories, keep them engaged. So, you know, when, when you combine all of that, we are basically entertainers and you've got to have the personality, you've got to be a people person and you've got to be willing to teach and help these people succeed because, you know, there's, you know, some folks, they save up for a whole year just to come to spend a, to fish a day or two with me. So, you know, those folks, you got to put yourself in their shoes. You know, this is their their big vacation or big expenditure for the year and you want to give them the best day possible that you can.
0: Yeah, and I think people sometimes don't realize how physically demanding it is to fish for smallmouth, particularly in the summertime when it's so hot.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The One of the hardest things, um being a guide is to keep the people focused and in in the game because there's, there's a lot of casting involved um when you're fishing for smallmouth bass especially you know out of a drift boat which is what I do for the most part and you know you've got to they you got to keep them focused and and have them paying attention and you know you'll go through a slow stretch on a you know during the day, where you know the fish aren't, might not be as active as they were when you first started, and you know their minds will start to wander, and about that time they could miss miss the fish of a lifetime, you know, or you know a real big smallmouth bass. So you know you got to keep them, keep talking to them, keep coaching them, and keep them in the game and keep them focused. You know that's that's one of the hardest parts is is to keep the people focused. Like you said, middle of summer, you know, July and August, it's 95 degrees out there. You know, you're sweating, it's hot, it's humid, but you got to have them maintain that focus.
0: Yeah. As I joke with people, I grew up in central Virginia and that's where I usually fish for smallmouth. You know, it's definitely not a dry heat in August for sure.
1: <laughs> you know, that That's for sure. It, it gets pretty swampy. That's, that's, that's the way it is.
0: Absolutely. And so you know, one thing that always interests me, because I've been lucky enough to talk to to several um, smallmouth guides um, on the podcast is kind of the regional differences in smallmouth fishing. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious, how, how are Smallies in Pennsylvania different from, say, small mouth down in Virginia or in the upper Midwest?
1: Well, I think I mean, a smallmouth bass is a smallmouth bass in, in any moving water, okay? They're going to relate to the structure that's there, okay? So, on on my rivers here, and even in Virginia, you know, they're pretty much limestone based. So you have you have your ledge systems, uh, you know, your rock outcroppings and stuff like that. And the bass here, I'm going to say, in the mid Atlantic region, relate to to um, to rock structure versus where at least on my rivers i don't have a lot of wood to fish so my bass don't relate to wood as much as like um out in the midwest because i've i've been fortunate enough i fished michigan i fished uh, minnesota some of those places out there where you do have the wood and the bass relate to the wood but here um they don't but you know they're going to relate to structure that's what what smallmouth do. They relate to the structure. They're they're a predator and they're an ambush predator. So anything that gives them protection or cover that they can they can try to hide and then ambush their prey. That's what they're going to relate to, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. And so if it's really about the the bass relating to the structure wherever they are, does that mean that sort of the arc of the fishing season? is kind of the same across the country. It just starts earlier and later, kind of depending on where you are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, you know, the further South you would go when, when you talk like Virginia down through there, that's going to usually because it warms up earlier than say here in Pennsylvania. So the season in in Virginia is going to start a little earlier than Pennsylvania. Then, when you get out into the Midwest and and places like that, or you' know, up into New York into maine, they're going to start later than what my season starts because it doesn't warm up as quick up there as it does you know here in Pennsylvania. The other thing if if we could backtrack a, a bit about you were talking about the different fisheries in the different parts of the country versus like Virginia, Pennsylvania, out in the Midwest. And so it's interesting to see um like here here where I am on the Susquehanna and Juniata, you had you have Bob Clauser's influence. So a lot of the patterns that you have here were influenced by Bob. When you get down into Virginia, you had truck craft. So a lot of those uh, patterns were influenced by Chuck. And then you also had Harry Murray. And you had, you know, like over on the Shenandoah and stuff like that, his patterns. You go out in the Midwest, the guys like Mike Schultz, uh, Tim Landwehr, uh, Tim Holschlag, those guys, they all have their own patterns that they developed for their water. So even though a smallmouth bass is a smallmouth bass and, and moving water, you have those guys that develop patterns all around and there's a lot of crossover too, but, but it is kind of interesting when you look at those different, uh, geographical regions of, you know, the people that, that influenced it the most.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I've been lucky enough to watch a lot of those guys tying to hear about the tying problems they were trying to solve, uh, when they did Mm -hmm. their fly design, whether it's, you know, using foam heads to float because you want to stay out of the timber or inverting the hook by, you know, keel weighting the fly or, you know, putting more mass um, in the head of the fly so that you can get it out of timber so it won't kind of dig in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, or, you know, to your point, like in the mid-Atlantic where it's more rock ledges, um, having those patterns that that are really good about, you know, working those ledges, you know, like the, the uh, I guess, uh, Chuck's uh, Claw Dad. Right or something like mm-hmm. that. Right. So it's it's interesting, um, you know, to see that problem solving approach that you're talking about.
1: Oh, absolutely, it is. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, I've been I've been fortunate where I've got to fish with a lot of these guys and get to experience their water and see how they fish their patterns. It is it and and get their philosophies on why they did what they did and and how they fish like they fish, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Um, one, one thing that I find very interesting is, you know, Bob Clouser is my mentor. So of course I, I spend a lot of time fishing with Bob and Bob's a big proponent of fishing sinking lines. And I've got, I got, I was lucky enough to get to know Chuck for a little while and spend some time with him and talk strategy with him and he fished almost primarily all floating line. So, you know, you had two different philosophies from two very, very good smallmouth guides and it was it it's just interesting, you know, to to figure out why they did what they did and, and so forth like that.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting too. Cause you know, then that translates into f- fly design, right. And technique. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how people try to solve those problems on the water.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: It, and so I, I'm assuming you probably what start pre-spawn fishing, what probably like April, something like that.
1: Usually end of March on a normal year. But unfortunately, this year has not been normal because um, the last two weeks, we've had frost. And this is going on late April. And matter of fact, they're calling for frost this evening. So, yeah, but usually by uh, end of March, beginning of April is when we start our pre-spawn.
0: Got it. And so, you know, we'll, let's maybe walk through the season. So you start there, you, you know, how are the smallmouth behaving and wh- how does that translate into techniques uh, to get them in the boat?
1: Well, what what happens is when water starts warming up and and gets into oh, the mid-40s, I'll say, is when the fish are really going to start coming out of the wintering holes and start moving. So as the water warms, starts warming up, and getting up close to 50 degrees, these fish are hungry. They haven't eaten much all winter, and they know it. They're going to have to spawn, so they're coming out of the wintering holes. Um, the water's still relatively cold, so but they're going to eat. So they're not going to. What you're going to find, I find on my waters, is you want to look for back eddies, something with slow current, because as they're traveling along, they they don't seem to have the, the stamina yet to fight current. So they're going to be in groups, and they're going to be in the slower, slacker of water off of the main current, if that
0: makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's almost like fishing for trout when it's really cold. They kind of bunch up in that slower water. So, so from a technique perspective, does that mean that you're basically going to fish close to the bottom, probably slow, and um, try to? I guess you know, they're, I, I'm assuming that they won't chase because of the water's too cold at that point, and you're kind of so you're trying to kind of be a little bit more pinpoint in, in how you approach the fish.
1: Absolutely, it's going to be primarily. I'll fish a sinking line, and depending on the flow, it's either going to be a type three. Full sinking line, or if we have a, a normal flow or a little bit lower flow, I'll fish in inter- full intermediate. But everything is going to be, at this time of year, is going to be low and slow. And a lot of times when you're fishing, um, say you're fishing a game changer or another type of streamer, a lot of times if you give it the pause, and let that fly start to sink it a little bit and then just give it a little pull. A lot of times that's when when you'll, you'll get the fish to eat. So it, it's sort of low and slow in the early part of the pre-spawn when the waters are still cold.
0: Got it. And so we kind of move on from there. So we start to move into April. And how, how do things change as the water starts to warm up and we get closer to the spawn?
1: They're they're going to become uh, more active. They'll they'll start to chase as the water temperatures rise because these are these are cold blooded fish. So as the water temperature starts to rise and the water warms up, they become more active. So then you can you can speed up your retrieves, and the fish will actually chase. And once the water temperature hits around sixty degrees you can get them to eat top water. So they will come up and take a top water bug. So um that gives you another option especially if you got a real nice warm sunny day, they'll come up and you can get them on top water.
0: It is that sort of a gradual progression too, so you were going, you know, low and slow uh, first thing in the season, but as as you know obviously if they're going to end up chasing stuff on top or they also chasing more active presentations higher in the water column?
1: Yes. Yep, absolutely. So, um, you know, you don't have to go, with, unless you've got high flows, you really wouldn't have to go to a type 3 of line. Then you could go with, with your intermediates and, you know, a little bit faster retrieve because they're going to be more active. So, yes, they are going to, going to eat higher up in the water column. And then again, you can try, you can get them on top water. You know, of course you use a floating line then and, and a popping bug or something like that. And you can get them to come up and eat. So it, you know, your retrieves will be a little bit faster, a little bit higher in the water column as they progress into the spawn.
0: Got it. So they kind of come out on the other side, right? So it's full and warm. Um, how long does it take? Before you get into kind of, I guess, what people would think of as that traditional summer smallmouth bite,
1: that traditional summer smallmouth bite. So for us here, um, our fish usually spawn in April and May because um, not all the smallmouth spawn at the same time. They sort of spawn in in waves. So you're going to have you're going to have fish spawning. where well, you're going to have pre-spawn fish you're going to have some fish spawning and then you're going to have post-spawn fish so our spawn is april may and you get that post-spawn funk about the first two weeks or so of june depending on you know how the spring progressed and then we you know by the time end of june beginning of july that's our our summer pattern is when it really starts then. And then by then all your fish are spread out in in the river system. Um, you know, they're more active, they're chasing bait, they're eating insects. Um so, you know, you can do a combination. You got popper fishing as well as streamer fishing.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's gonna hold right until you get a few really hard frosts to kind of start to get people to kind of back off what in probably like early October, something like that.
1: Usually for us, it's, it's usually around mid-October, um, mid to late October. Depends on when them first heavy cold fronts start coming through. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it is the way the weather pattern's been, you know, the last, I don't know, five or so years. I mean, we've had some, I'll call it falls that we've actually fished into December you know, and and we're catching smallmouth on the fly. Because we still have water temperatures around 50 degrees or in the 50s. Um, but nor- on a normal year, you know, usually mid to late October for us is when they're going to start slowing down because the water is going to start cooling off again.
0: And so, you know, it's kind of, I assume it's sort of like watching a, a ball bounce, right? You started on the bottom. You came up to the top, and you know. I assume you know as you fish, as the 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 fish start to slow down and things cool off, you're going to start moving back down the water column and back to kind of the winter structure. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. As the water cools off, you know, and they're going to start they're going to start moving again. They're going to start grouping up again because they're going to start moving towards the wintering holes. So yeah, you'll start. As the water starts cooling off, you're going to get deeper and your presentations are going to get slower for sure.
0: And, and, you know, obviously the weather's been nutty, uh, the last few years, but you know, when do you kind of normally kind of hang it up and go chase something else, uh, either on the fly or maybe go deer hunting?
1: Um, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'll still be out there fishing as long as the water temperatures are still about 45 degrees because you can still catch smallmouth on the fly. The coldest I've caught them was 42 degrees. So, but it's, it's not for everybody because, you know, you're using full sinking lines, you're using weighted streamers, and it's real slow retrieves. But I actually stopped guiding the end of October. Um, I do have some clients that, that'll come out and do that, but that's not for everybody. You know what I mean? Cause a lot of guys, you know, they want to cast, they want to strip, they want to cast, they want to strip. And that's not the game you're playing when that water temperature gets down in the forties.
0: Yeah. And it's a lot of work casting, uh, big streamers on sinking lines. And, you know, I mean, obviously the game, right. Is to cover as much water as possible. Um, and so you may not be sweating like it's August, but you'll get tired just the same, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, you know, especially when you're throwing those sinking lines like that and, and bigger streamers, you better believe it. You know, it's a workout.
0: Absolutely. It's a workout. And so, you know, for folks that don't know, you guide on the Susquehanna and the Juniata. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, those two fisheries and kind of how they're alike and how they're different?
1: Well, the biggest difference, yeah, the biggest difference is the Susquehanna is big water. Um, the area that I guide in is three quarters of a mile wide, um, where the Juniata is not even not even a quarter mile wide. So it, it's definitely size difference between both rivers, but again, they're both limestone rivers. So you still have the same types of structure on each river, except the Juniata would be more condensed or more intimate than the Susquehanna. Because a lot of folks, when they come to the Susquehanna, you know, and they've tried fishing it on their own, they're intimidated by the size. They're thinking, oh my God, where do I go? Where do I start? You know? Where the Juniata it's it's easier to to break it down and and figure out how to fish it. Where the Susquehanna, depending if you're in a boat or if you're wading, you gotta break it down into sections and fish, you know, like a do do an imaginary square and fish that thoroughly and then move on and then do the same thing again. But um yeah, I mean it's it's just size is the biggest difference then the the other thing is susquehanna has mid-river islands mid-river grass beds where most of the grass there's really not a whole lot of islands on in the juniata there's a few but not like the susquehanna and most of the grass that you're going to find in the juniata are going to be on the edges and not mid-river like it is on the susquehanna
0: Got it. And, you know, in terms of access for anglers, uh, is there a good mix of wade and float access? Or, you know, if the Susquehanna is bigger, do you, you really need to have a boat?
1: Well, there's a lot of, of good wading access on the Susquehanna. Um, more so than the Juniata, because what happens with the Juniata is, I mean, the the fish commission did a very good job there's plenty of boat ramps that you could go in at to wade a lot of the you you'll find a lot of cabins and so forth up along the Juniata and not so much on the Susquehanna so the Juniata has a lot more private property that it's hard to just pull off and and get down to the river unless you go to a boat ramp The Susquehanna is a little bit more spread out. You have a little bit better opportunities for wade fishing there than you do uh, on the Juniata. The other problem you have on both rivers is on one side is bordered by a railroad and the other side is bordered by a highway. So, you know, but as, as long as you go to like a boat ramp, you can access both rivers from a boat ramp and go from there.
0: Got it. And just to help our listeners out, you know, what are Pennsylvania's rules around, you know, you're mentioning, you know, you legally access the water, you know, if you're floating the Juniata and you legally get in at a boat ramp, you know, what are the rules for your ability to anchor up or to get out and wade and fish?
1: Oh, I mean, you can go for it. It, It's all public water. So, you know, you put in, you put in at a, at a uh, boat ramp, you can go up down that river, you can anchor, you can get out and wait. you just can't really, and the railroad, they, I forget how many years ago this started, it became a problem. When I was growing up, it was never an issue to cross the railroad tracks and get down to the river. But... I forget how many years ago it was there there was uh there was a group of kids down uh in the southern part of the river put a rope swing up you know like kids do swinging off dropping into the river swimming and carrying on one of the kids got seriously injured parents turned around sued the railroad so then the railroad decided to put no trespassing signs up the whole length of the railroad. And if they catch you crossing the railroad tracks, legally they can fine you for trespassing. So that, that caused a big uh, problem. So I guess what I was driving at is, you know, if you get out the wade and you're on the railroad side, they're really not going to say much as long as you don't go up and go across the tracks. But as long as you're in the river, I don't think they'll have a problem with it.
0: Got it. And, you know, I always kind of think when I think of the Susquehanna, I think about all of the problems the smallmouth population had, I guess what, in the mid 2000s. You -hmm. know, how are the, how are the Susquehanna and the Juniana fishing today?
1: Well, they're fishing, a lot better than when we had to crash. That's for sure. The, the population rebounded, uh, very, very well. And it but we had the crash in 2005 and about 2011, it started making the turn for the positive and it's been fishing very, very well. And except now what we seem to be running into is we're still always going to have, uh, pollution issues um and unfortunately it's it's all a lot of it's all political but the other issue that we're we're finding now that's happening is we have a flathead catfish problem and it's they're starting to their population has really exploded and flathead catfish are not bottom feeders like channel cats they eat live, uh, fish. So, um, they're starting to put a little hurting on, on the population. Um, they're putting a hurting on the crayfish population. So, um, you know, the fishing's still very, very good. It's just something's gotta be done to try to get this to balance out. But, um, Yeah, both rivers from from what they were in the mid-2000s to today are excellent, excellent. Unfortunately, I I got to live through, I guess you would call it, some of the heydays from the, well, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. You know, um, I mean, there's plus and minuses to that we used to be able to go out and catch a hundred fish a day or more, but they were 10 inches, 12 inch fish. Very rarely did we get, you know, like the 18 plus inch fish. Um, so I don't, we'll never see what I experienced growing up again, but what we have now, which is good is we still have numbers, not as high numbers, But we also have the possibility of every day going on either river that you could catch a four-pound-plus smallmouth bass. So we have uh, an excellent trophy fishery, as well as we still have a numbers two, but it's just not what it was early 2000s, 90s, and 80s.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, for our listeners that that don't know, flathead catfish are like fish vacuum cleaners. Um, you know, they cause a lot of problems for a lot of fisheries uh, for either eating, you know, over-consuming forage or actually eating the target species. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean they can uh, they can really uh, put the wood uh, to a fishery. Um and in terms of pollution, you know is it still predominantly agricultural and kind of like residential fertilizer runoff? Is that the big problem right now in the Susquehanna and the Juniata that is kind of the the thing that everybody kind of needs to watch to make sure that everything stays on track?
1: Well, you have agriculture you've got uh lawn fertilizer, and the one of the biggest problems too that we have are. The antiquated uh, wastewater treatment facilities that we have up and down both rivers, the um, the wastewater treatment facilities today are not equipped to filter out pharmaceuticals. So, that is is another big issue that you have because. When the waste comes in, you know, and the pharmaceuticals hit the wastewater treatment plant, they basically just keep on going because they can't filter them out yet. So, you've got agriculture, fertilizer, and pharmaceuticals. That's that's the three main right there.
0: Right. And I guess the all the fertilizer and agricultural waste, I guess, drives up the nitrogen in the water, and then you have these kind of algae blooms, and then that takes the oxygen out and... Um, you know, kills the fish that way, right?
1: Absolutely. Yep. It depletes the oxygen when you get these algae blooms, especially you get a real dry summer, you get low, hot water, and then there's al- algae blooms just explode. And then it takes the dissolved oxygen out of the water. And then it, it eventually will kill the fish.
0: Yeah. In my understanding on the pharmaceutical issues, it's everything from, you know, it causes lesions on the bass to makes them sterile. I think I've read articles about um, how literally smallmouth bass have changed from male to female or female to male based upon some of the uh, pharmaceuticals that are making their way out of the wastewater treatment process.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's unfortunate because, you know, I think we all, take some sort of medication you know whether it's prescription or over-the-counter stuff everybody takes something so when you go to the bathroom and then you know you flush it flush the toilet you know it it all gets washed in to the to the wastewater system and and like i said they can't filter they don't have the the abilities there they it's just you know the municipalities have got to spend the money to upgrade to be able to do that and that is part of the political process that that it it just you know it's hard to address because nobody wants to raise tax politicians don't want to raise taxes and you know the the, the population doesn't want to pay more in taxes but I, I honestly feel, without getting on my soapbox, that if the public was made aware that a lot of their drinking water comes from these rivers that that we love to fish, that aren't that clean, I think enough pressure could be put to make these changes. But until you get the general population to realize that, it's just going to be status quo that we've been fighting forever.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'll, I'll help you not get on your soapbox, um, by asking you to, to share your favorite patterns for smallmouth and how you like to fish them.
1: Well, some of my favorite patterns, I mean, we can, we can start with, with poppers. Um, I'm a big fan of, of, uh,
0: can I name brands? You can do whatever you want to do.
1: Okay. Um, you know, one of my favorites are, are going to be Boogle bug poppers. Um, I'm a big fan of Chuck crafts, popping bugs. Um, of course you're going to use a floating line, nine foot leader. Um, the key is, you know, I get clients, I give, put a popper on for them. They make a cast and they want to just rip it back across there and splash, splash, splash water across and uh, sometimes yes you will catch a fish that way but for the most part you know i like to make the cast you let that bug hit the water um you let the rings disappear let it drift a little bit and just give it little short twitches just enough to make those rubber legs just wiggle a little bit and then just let it basically dead drift a little twitch dead drift a little twitch um when you want to drop down into the water column um you know flies like smaller game changers definitely clouds or minnows um there's other flies like a murdich minnow uh even a lefty's deceiver um those for the most part i'm going to fish on an intermediate line uh short leader when i say short It's not a tapered leader. It's just four to five feet of straight tippet material, no less than 10-pound test. And, you know, the the key with fishing streamers like that is you need to make the fly come alive. So it's, you know, it's just not making your cast and just steady strips. You know, you've got to strip, strip, and a little pause, let that fly dive down, strip, strip. So you, you, you got to animate your fly. You got to make it look alive. And, um, and that's how I like to fish streamers. Uh, if we get higher flows, uh, I'll go to a sinking line, like a type three sinking line, just to get down a little bit to fight the current. But for the most part, my summer fishing, I'm going to have – For the guys in the boat, I got a floater rigged up, and I got an intermediate for them. That's my two primary lines right
0: there. Gotcha. And just to back up on the uh, topwater bugs, do you like to fish sliders at all?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There will be times, um, especially when we get low, clear water, I I really like a a slider then um, because you can pull on that and gives that a little bit of dive and then pops back up just like a uh a minnow wood coming up to the surface. So I, I definitely do like sliders as well.
0: Got it. And what do you like when you're dredging?
1: When I'm dredging on the bottom, um you can't beat uh a claw dead or a critter mite. You know, one's gonna be a crayfish, which is the claw dead, and the critter mite's a helgramite. and just have them coming down across the ledges. Um, Again, you can fish them on a floating line, um, especially the claw dead, because you'll keep it up a little bit off the bottom and it'll look like a fleeing crayfish. Your critter might, you know, get it on an intermediate and you can get it down to the rocks just like a helgramite would. Um, Another, if we jump back to the poppers though, one of our, and I know, you talked about you wanted to talk about um insect hatches so one of our bigger insect hatches and i may be jumping the gun here how you wanted to go but are the blue damsels that we have up here so our blue damsels start coming off early july and they will come off right into early september and usually about ten thirty, eleven o'clock they'll start popping. And a lot of times you can look down river and you can actually see fish jumping out of the water for a blue damsel. So there I like to fish a a bug or a popper, um Carolina blue or, or a blue type of popper to mimic the uh the blue damsels. And again, you don't want to rip them across the water, dead drift them and twitch them and become very effective.
0: Yeah. And a whole lot easier to cast than some of those more realistic looking, uh, dragonfly or damsel imitations for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, and do you guys have, uh, cicadas up in Pennsylvania, like they do down in Virginia?
1: We do have cicadas. Um, not our, our fish don't really key in unless we have have the 17-year cicadas where they're dropping everywhere. Our fish don't really, on what we call the dog-based cicadas that you have all summer long, our fish don't really seem to key in on those. But, yeah, we do have cicadas. Um, and while we're on insects, It's kind of interesting on both the Susquehanna and the Juniata, because they're limestone-based rivers, we have pretty much a lot of the same insect hatches that we do on our trout streams. So we get caddis, we get uh, slate drakes, we get brown drakes, we actually get blue-winged olives, we actually get sulfur's, Um, and, you know, the bats will come up and eat insects. They won't make a steady diet of them, but they do come up and eat insects. Um, their, their diet's going to consist most of minnows and crayfish, but they will eat insects. Uh, one of our biggest hatches that we have are the white flies that come off in my area usually about the 3rd or 4th week of uh, July and go into early August and you can catch a good size smallmouth bass on like a uh, size 12 white wolf if you want to catch them on a dry fly but the problem with that is when that hatch comes off it's pretty heavy at times so, if you throw an exact imitation like a white wolf out there, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So I always try to give them something different: white popper, uh, white uh, floating minnow, or something like that, something you can kind of skitter across the top. It seems to get the bass's attention more than just fishing a dry fly amongst a million other natural insects on the water so
0: yeah absolutely not to mention if you can't see it it's hard to set the hook
1: absolutely
0: (laughs) (laughs) so um and and you you also designed a a pattern called the shimmering minnow which is i i guess to describe it for the listeners it's a it's an articulated um streamer what kind of Mm -hmm. what fishing problem were you trying to solve when you designed the shimmering minnow
1: I was trying to solve what I was trying to do was was come up with something that would give me a wounded bait fish in the upper part of the water column in the one to two foot range is what I was trying trying to solve with that. And that's about the time when these shanks were first coming out. And, you know, I, I put a shank on the back of a hook and played with some different material and stuff. And that's pretty much how the idea came about. So I wanted something, a wounded minnow and a one to two foot water column is, is what I was trying to solve with that.
0: And, and how long did it take you to get the the pattern the way you wanted it to be? And how did you know you had arrived
1: it took me probably probably about two years till I got it to where where I was satisfied with it, and you know it's just in the the neat thing with that fly is, and, and I don't know, I, I guess because of the motion, and the material that I use to tie the body reflects the way it reflects the light. In clear water, I mean, it's like it's like candy that there's bass. It's just unbelievable that you can actually, you'll be able to see the fish just come out from a ledge or something and just come out and, and crush it. So it is pretty cool. The only drawback that I haven't figured out yet with, with that fly is it doesn't perform well in dirty water, but I'm still working on it. But if you have clear water, smallmouth bass, I go nuts for it.
0: Well, we'll have to have you back on when you solve the dirty water problem, and you can tell us how you did it. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) So I think we've touched we've touched on flies and leaders and lines. Um, What rods do you like to fish for smallmouth in terms of, I guess, weight, length, and action?
1: I'm pretty much. have the guys throw seven weights i prefer to fish a seven weight um you know i'm fishing i guess you would call it a fast moderate fast action rod um nine foot rods for the most part um i have played with some of the shorter um that were bass specific rods and I like them for throwing top water, not so much for fishing streamers. But pretty much, I don't think you can go wrong with a, with a nine foot seven weight rod.
0: Got it. Yeah. No. Good advice. Yeah. And, and it's also too. I imagine, uh, to, as you were saying, the shorter rods are maybe good for top water. But you know that lever is so much shorter. I mean, if you're throwing sinking lines, that would be kind of tough on a short stick.
1: Oh, absolutely! Absolutely. But they are fun to, to fish top water with. I will admit that. I do, I do enjoy that with them.
0: And so when you get guys in your boat, um, what's the most common mistake you see folks make when they're fishing for smallmouth?
1: Is not being able to cast? And because I, I get a lot of folks come from from a trout background. And they're not used to making 50, 60-foot casts. That has got to be the biggest mistake that I see is not being able to cast. Because the further away from the boat you can get your fly, you are able to present your fly to a much bigger audience and cover more water by being able to throw 50 60 foot cast versus a 20 foot cast so you know that's that's probably one of the biggest things is is the casting
0: it is it the kind of the fundamentals of being able to cast for distance or is it that people uh come to you that are mostly trout fishermen and they're not used to fishing really wind resistant bugs and kind of understanding what that takes
1: well it's not not knowing how to throw wind resistant bugs, but they're not used to the heavier equipment either. You know, because most guys are fishing anywhere from trout fishing. Majority are fishing three, four or five weight, and now you give them what feels like a a pool cue, and you want them to be able to cast. You know, a fly that's probably four inches. Three and a half, four inch long streamer, or even a big popper, and you know it's just the whole system from a heavier rod, a heavier line, a bigger fly. It's just the whole mechanics that they're not used to being able to do
0: that. And and I guess the the short answer, right, is you probably should buy a seven weight and practice in the yard a lot before you come out because I don't know how you. You know, you can be a good caster, but, you know, if you cast a four-weight rod, just the fatigue of casting a seven-weight all day long is going to take its toll on you.
1: Oh, my, absolutely. I mean, you know, the best advice I can give somebody, if especially if they're, you know, a beginner and haven't done much fly fishing, you know, um, I, I tell them straight up. I said, look, go to your local fly shop. Take a fly casting lesson and then book a day with me. Because once you get the basics down, then I can build upon that to help you become a better caster. But what happens with me, because I operate a drift boat, it's hard for me to run the boat, put you in position. And give you a casting lesson all at the same time, you know, as we're floating down the river. But if you have the, if you get, take a casting lesson and you get the basics, then I can build upon those and help you to become a better caster.
0: Yeah. I always tell people to take a little bit of the rod money away and spend it on some lessons when they're starting out.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Makes life a whole lot better, because if you can't deliver the fly, it's a pretty frustrating sport, as you were mentioning early on when you were uh, feeding the hemlocks.
1: Oh, my, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's another thing, too, Marvin, is, you know, if I get folks that come from, you know, a conventional background that have just started fly fishing, I have those folks bring a spinning rod with them and bring their fly rod, bring a spinning rod. The last thing that I want them to do is to get frustrated. So, you know, we're fly fishing. And if I see they're starting to get frustrated, I'm going to have them say, Hey, let's put the fly rod down, take a little break, pick your spinning rod up, fish that for a little bit, and then we'll come back to the fly rod. Because once they get frustrated, then you lose them and you lost them for the day. So I have them bring both and then go back and forth. And it it seems to work out fairly well.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so why don't you tell us a little bit more about Susquehanna River Guides, kind of what you do, kind of what your routine is?
1: Well, I mean... um, You know, most of my trips are are run out of a drift boat. I have a high, uh, low-profile drift boat. And um, so, you know, if you need casting help, I'm there for you. If you want to learn a technique, I'm there for you. Um, I want you to walk away at the end of the day having a great experience and felt like you learned something And that I tried to help you to become a better angler. I mean, that's, that's what I'm here for. You know, it's, it's to help you get better, to help you catch fish, um, that you'll be able to leave my boat and be able to do it on your own.
0: Yeah. And I noticed uh, one of the neat things that you do is, you know, you do full days and half days, but you also have a special deal for folks who will come and fish with you for two days in a row
1: absolutely absolutely i do um two rivers two days so you you come you you book the two rivers two days package and what that does is we'll fish one day on the susquehanna one day on the juniata river and it gives you a taste of big water and more intimate water um still fishing for smallmouth bass of course still the same types of structure and so forth like that, but you get a day, um, on two different river systems. So it, it, uh, it's gone over real well. And a lot of people like that, you know, to, to be able to fish two different rivers for two days. So it's done real well.
0: Yeah. And I always tell people too, if you can swing it to fish with a guide for two or three days in a row, cause you know, if you pick one day, you may not have great weather front comes through and you kind of it also, I imagine, gives you the flexibility of picking which river you want to fish, which which day too.
1: Oh, absolutely, it does. You know, and that's and that's great advice too, because like you say, you never know you, you could have a weather day, and you know, and the fish could be off, and the next day, you know, somebody turned a switch on, and it's like gangbusters. You know, the old saying is, "Well, you should have been here yesterday." You know. So, um, it you know, that's, that's great, you know, that people can do that, you know, if, if they have the flexibility to be able to come for two days or three days, however.
0: Absolutely, and I always ask all of my guide guests to share what they think the biggest misconception folks have about the life of a fishing guide.
1: Oh, the, I think the biggest misconception is people think that I get paid to go fish every day. And, you know, the truth is I'll be lucky if I get one day a week that I get to go fish, you know, it's, uh, everybody says, oh man, I want to be a guy. I get, I'd be able to go fish every day. No, you don't. You know, it's, that's one of the, I I think biggest pet peeves that I have. And I hope this don't ruffle too many feathers, but I'm going to say it anyhow. Most of the spin fishing guides we have here, they fish with the client. So they have their jet boats, and there's two clients and the guide. The guide's in the front of the boat, a client's in the middle of the boat, and a client's in the back of the boat. And the guide is fishing right along with their client. And that's not, in my opinion, that's not right. You know, they don't, you're not booking me to see me fish you're booking me to teach you how to catch these fish and help you become a better angler you're not paying to see me fish and that just rubs me the wrong way with with the way this the conventional guys do it but that's the difference between them and us so
0: yeah it's funny you say that i was doing an interview earlier today and i was uh we were discussing it and i said i think the only people that actually fish less than fishing guides are people that own fly shops
1: well that's a true story too
0: (laughs) so before i let you uh, let you hop tonight brian why don't you let folks know where they can find you so they can learn more about your guide service and you know when things get unlocked in pennsylvania for guiding uh they can book you and fish with you
1: absolutely um You can get a hold of me, I have a website, it's www.susqriverguides.com. You can call, uh, my phone number seven one seven five seven four five three three eight. 717-574-5338, also on Instagram at s-u-s-q-g-u-i-d-e, and also on Facebook, Susquehanna River Guides. Um also, you know, once we get through all this, uh we're still booking trips, so you wanna book a trip for later on this summer, we still have days available, so you can get a hold of me.
0: Well there you go, and I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes, Brian, and I really appreciate you spending some time with me this evening.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Marvin.
0: Oh, it's been a blast. Thanks so much.
1: All right. You take
0: care. You too. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice and tell a friend. And again, a shout out to this episode sponsor. Check out our friends at Norvice at www.nor-vice.com. Stay safe, everybody. Tight lines.